Okay, well, we're going to try to get started. Um, my intentions were to be here early today, but one of the things we're going to try to do is maybe start early, and then for people who may need to be back on time, maybe even end about five minutes early. So we'll see what we can do here. We've got a great class. I've really been enjoying uh, my studying for it because it, uh, it well, I like history, and it covers a lot of, uh, at least the intro covers a lot of history to get us into it. But then it's also a lot of the history about Israel. We, we've studied in this class um, sort of the one side of the mountain. And now we're kind of working our way down the other side because we studied, uh, we have studied Joshua and Judges and uh, Ruth and First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings until we got to the, um, the destruction of Jerusalem and the deportation to Babylon. And that's where we really sort of pick this up today. And we are going to study um, not the 70 years of deportation. Uh, we could do that. We could do that in Daniel, and we can cover a couple other prophets. But we're jumping to the return. The deportation occurs in about 586 B.C. with the destruction of Jerusalem. And then the return is around 537. Of course, when we talk about uh, history before Christ, B.C., we're coming down the timetable. So uh, 586, then down to 539. The 70 years of Babylonian captivity actually begins probably somewhere in the vicinity of 6 105 B.C., and then the return somewhere in the vicinity of uh, 635, six, something like that. And we'll talk about the, that, that information. Um, what I've done is uh, given you an outline that you have, and I don't want to spend a lot of time with uh, this outline, but it, it, you can maybe even read some of it on your own. A part of it, though, I think is, is pretty important for us, and that's going to be the characters that, we, that we'll see. And we'll talk about those uh, here in just a minute. Uh, but I guess, first of all, what I should do, is I, what I normally do, is we start with a, a word of prayer. And so let me give you just a few seconds for uh, personal, private, spiritual preparation, confession of sins, uh, using 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins... He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so I just give you just a few seconds for uh, your personal privacy, and then I'll open us in prayer. Dearly Father, we're thankful for the Word of God that we have to study. We're thankful for the historical content that is there. We pray that... Uh, we would understand why it's there, because it's there for a purpose. It's not just a history book. It has the unfolding, uh, the unfolding program of God through history. Help us to be able to see that and also learn more about your character and be able to apply this to our lives as well. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Uh, welcome to the Noon Hour Bible Class Book of uh, Ezra, 
Hopefully, we will get to Ezra 1 today. I'm going to try to do that. But first, we're going to see an introduction. And then, in chapter 1, verses 1 and following, we'll see in that first chapter the proclamation of King Cyrus. All right. Introduction. Let me just kind of walk our way through this. The book of Ezra is a remarkable witness to God's faithfulness to his people. Together with Nehemiah, Ezra describes the events leading to the return of the Judeans from captivity in Babylon and the discouraging experiences of that small community in the harsh world of the promised land. But through every experience, God proved himself faithful through the leadership of Ezra and Zerubbabel. And we'll see Zerubbabel early on. Ezra is mentioned here because that's the book. But we're going to see that Zerubbabel and his and the, the priest that goes with him, his name is Joshua, are going to be the focus of the first part of the book of Ezra. And then Ezra comes in during a second group that comes from Babylon. So the first part is Zerubbabel. Then we have Ezra in the second half of the book of Ezra. And then in Nehemiah, we have Nehemiah who comes with the third group. And I'll show you, I have a diagram of that for you as well. So through the leadership of Ezra and Zerubbabel in Ezra and Nehemiah in the book of Nehemiah, God fulfills his promises announced by his prophets to restore his people from Babylon, to build the temple at Jerusalem and to renew their hope that the Davidic kingdom would be restored. And so God has promised them a kingdom and They were disciplined for these 70 years, but God is faithful and he's bringing them back. In the historical setting, the setting of the book is, again, the post-exilic era. And that's how we describe the period of time post-Babylonian exile, post-exilic era. When the faithful Israelites were returning from Babylon to Judah so that they could establish their temple worship, one of the first things they will do is they will build the temple. The first thing, of course, they will do when they arrive in chapter 3, we'll see that they build an altar. And then they're going to build the temple. After they build the temple, a little bit of the city will be built around it, and then Nehemiah comes to build the walls around Jerusalem. So in all the books written during the post-exilic period, the temple and temple worship are vital subjects, and we're going to see that. These include First and Second Chronicles, uh, towards the end of them, uh, although First um, Chronicles is really written, First and Second Chronicles, we believe, are probably written during the post-exilic period, but of course, they're uh, the history of the fall of the Judean uh, line uh, dynasty. So, First and Second Chronicles... We'll see Ezra, Nehemiah, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. All except Esther, in which the people were unfaithful to the command of the Lord, given through Isaiah and Jeremiah to return to the land after captivity. So what we will see is, and I'm hopefully in this class, I didn't haven't talked about that yet, but hopefully in this class, not only will we study Ezra, but we'll jump to a couple of these other books and we'll get a chance to look at Haggai and Zechariah because they occur in the middle 
of Ezra, and also Esther does as well. Esther, we believe, occurs between the first and the second return of the Judeans from captivity. So that's a very interesting place. Uh, It's an interesting story. And let's see, the deportations to the land, uh, the people who returned to the land of promise were quickly were publicly acknowledging that they believed God would reestablish the nation and usher in a time of kingdom blessing. There were three returns from Babylon to the land of Israel. Time for me to see if I can get us to my slide here. All right. There were three returns from Babylon to the land of Israel. In 538, and this is a slide that I pulled out of the Bible Knowledge Commentary, and it's going to say 535. 535, 538 is the approximate time. Uh, so the, the three returns, 538, 458, and 444. So those are the three returns, and you can see them. The first one is under Zerubbabel, the second one under Ezra, and the third one under Nehemiah. So this is a, a wonderful graphic. It also shows us where these other books fall. Uh, Haggai, Zechariah, and Esther. Esther, in this, we believe, falls in this gap of about 57 years here. And you can see that this first period Uh, for the temple being rebuilt, it takes actually quite a while for them to get the temple rebuilt. And that would naturally be so. Uh, There was some obstruction. They were were forced to stop building uh, for a while. Uh, uh, After uh, Cyrus dies and his son is on the throne, Cambyses is the name. We'll study him here in a minute. Uh, Doesn't appear to support them. But when he dies and his son comes to the throne, Darius I, then they're able to begin to build again. And the temple is not dedicated until 515. So it takes a while to get this temple built. And then Zechariah, or excuse me, then Ezra comes, and one of the uh, important missions that he has is the reform that needs to occur within Israel, within uh, uh, the state of Judah. So there were three returns from Babylon to the land of Israel, 538 or 535, 458 and 444 B.C., just as there had been three deportations from the land of Babylon. And hopefully you might remember some of those, or maybe you'll remember them after I mention them. The first one was in 605 B.C., and 605 B.C. is when Daniel is deported. In 597 B.C., and by the way, this is Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar makes the first deportation in uh, 605 B.C., uh, and it's a deportation that is almost a warning. There's no destruction of Jerusalem. It's just a warning. So we're taking hostages back to Babylon. Uh, You need to be subservient to us. Well, that didn't work. So in 597, Nebuchadnezzar comes back, makes another deportation, and that deportation is with Ezekiel, takes Ezekiel back to Babylon. And Ezekiel's ministry 
is from Babylon. That's where his ministry, like Daniel's, uh, is outside the land. And then when uh, Jerusalem is destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar, he comes back in 586, destroys Jerusalem. Uh, That's the third deportation. The first return was led by Zerubbabel. And we see this in Ezra 1.6. We're also going to see it in Haggai and Zechariah. Uh, In 538 B.C., the building of the temple was of vital importance for this group. The second return was under Ezra. And we'll study that in Ezra 7.10 in 458 B.C. The people needed reforming. They needed to return to their covenant obligations. The third return was led by Nehemiah in 444 B.C. Nehemiah's concerns were to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem and, as in Ezra's time, to lead the people back to obedience to the Lord. The book of Malachi was probably written in Nehemiah's time. The events in the book of Esther occurred between the events recorded in Ezra 6 and Ezra 7. Um, And this is our chart, the post-exilic chart that we have here that I wanted you to see. All right. Now, there's going to be five groups of Jews during this period. The The first group are going to be those that remain in the land. And those that remain in the land are going to be instrumental for the book of Esther. They remain in the land. So the book book of Esther is written about those Jews. Those who were exiled to Babylon, so those who were exiled to Babylon are those who not only will remain in the land, but they're going to be ones that come back. So, uh, and those who remain in the land and those, excuse me, those who remain in the land, meaning the land of Israel, land of Judah. Got ahead of myself here. So the first group here, those who remain in the land, are those who remained in Judah. Now, we don't know how many there were. We know that from the first, second, and third deportation, that really what Nebuchadnezzar was doing with his first deportation was taking a lot of the sons of uh, the leading citizens so that the leading families would want to be subservient or loyal to Babylon. Didn't work out. He comes back, uh, takes another group. And so with each group, he's peeling off a layer of the leading citizens until he finally, in 586, really takes back most of the... Uh, upper, if we ha- if we have an upper or lower and middle class, and probably takes most of those back. There are still some people that are left in the land. Of course, they are maybe scattered uh, during the the war effort, but there are still people in the land of Judah. We don't know how many when Zerubbabel uh, comes back with this first group. They'll encounter some of them, and then uh, Nehemiah encounters even more of them with the third return, but um, there were people still remaining in the land. Then those who were exiled to Babylon, uh, who went in those three deportations, those who returned to to Judah from the exile, and that's the three that we have right here. And then we have those who fled to Egypt. Uh, When uh, Nebuchadnezzar comes the second and third time, there are going to be those people, 
and even some who went to Egypt from northern Israel. So when Assyria destroyed Samaria, the capital of northern Israel, it's, uh, very, uh, the northern kingdom very often called Samaria itself, there were some Jews who uh, uh, emigrated down to Egypt. And then more of them emigrated in 586 when Nebuchadnezzar destroyed Jerusalem. As a matter of fact, Jeremiah is the prophet during the period just prior to the destruction of Jerusalem. And he is taken captive by those who go to Egypt. And he spends the rest of his life down in Egypt. And we'll see a little bit more about that. And then those who remain in exile. And so we're going to have... Uh, Jews that will remain in exile, and that's the first group here I was talking about with Esther, but there's the fifth group on my, in my outline. And so there's going to be those who do not come back. And in some places we'll see that it appears that they were disobedient in not coming back. And in other places it appears that God actually desired to keep a certain number of Jews in what we call the diaspora because they, they really will become somewhat of a salt to the world uh, later on when uh, they are finally recalled. It's also one of the easiest ways to evangelize. Uh, By the uh, the 144,000 evangelists in the tribulation, they simply go out and the first places they would start was with the Jews in the diaspora. All right, the author and the name, the book of Ezra does not name its author. So it's not named... But Jewish tradition ascribes the book to Ezra along with the books of Chronicles and Nehemiah. We'll see that there is not 100% agreement with the Nehemiah. Uh, it appears that there could be the, uh, a single author there, but probably the preponderance of people believe that Nehemiah was, is the author of the book named for himself. Uh, modern scholarship generally agree with this tradition. Despite some dissimilar, dissimilarities, Chronicles, Ezra, and Nehemiah form a connected work. The themes of the temple and the Levites and the focus on lists appear in all three books. In the Hebrew Bible, Ezra and Nehemiah are together as one book. Thus it seems that one author compiled all three books. So it's possible. The fact that Ezra is the principal character of major sections of Ezra lends some credibility to his authorship of this book. Ezra participates in the events described in the second half of Ezra, chapters 7 through 10, as well as in events described in a portion of the book of Nehemiah, chapters 8 through 10. So we'll see that what's possible, and I think probably more possible, is that Nehemiah takes from Ezra and copies that into his scroll, as we would say, because he would be writing on a scroll. Both passages are written in the first person and provide detailed descriptions. Such vivid descriptions point to an eyewitness as the author. It's generally agreed that these chapters at least were drawn directly from Ezra's memoirs. And then I say, however, there's a strong support for Nehemiah to have authored the book by his name. On the other hand, the first half of Ezra records events that occurred nearly 60 years before Ezra returned to, Ju- to Judah. If Ezra compiled the book, he had to consult other sources for those passages. So, that's correct. If Ezra only arrives 450, 458, then we have a period of time 
that he does not witness. So he, he received that data, that information, from someone else. The date of the book, and of course, uh, I'm going to be speaking now mostly about Ezra, uh, not Ezra and Nehemiah or Chronicles, but it's possible that Ezra could have written all three of these books, and if he did, he probably started first on Chronicles, although we think that Chronicles, First and Second Chronicles were probably written somewhere in the vicinity, maybe of 450. It's possible they could have been written even later than that. But um, if 450 in here, not there, would be in there. Uh, if he just writes uh, Ezra, it's possible that he wrote it around 450. So the book of Ezra covers two distinct time periods. Chapters 1 through 6 covers the 23 years from the edict of Cyrus, which is going to be about 539, to the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem, 538 to 515. Or, excuse me, the edict is actually 536, and we'll see how that starts. Chapters 7 through 10 deal with the events from Ezra, after Ezra's return, from Babylon, 458. The two exceptions are Ezra 4.6, which refers to an event in the reign of Xerxes, and verses 7.23 in chapter 4, which parenthetically include a letter written during the reign of Artaxerxes, the son of Xerxes. The time of writing of the completed book could not have been earlier than about 4.50, when the events recorded in 10.17-44 took place. Ezra was a contemporary of Nehemiah, and if he waits until the end of Nehemiah to write, if he's a single author, then of course it would have been, been later. The text, nearly a fourth of the book of Ezra was written in Aramaic. The rest was written in Hebrew. The Aramaic sections, uh, 67 of 280 verses, are right sort of in the middle. Four, chapter 4, uh, 8 through 618, and chapter 7, 12 through 26. And what's sort of fun is that when I was in seminary, we not only took Hebrew, but we also took Aramaic, and we translated these sections. So this is a, sort of a welcome home for me as I go through those sections. The material in these verses was mainly copy, copied from official correspondence for which Aramaic was the standard language. It was the lingua franca, as we say, the coin of the realm of that day. Uh, The purpose and content. The books of Ezra and Nehemiah are one work in the Hebrew Bible. Now, because it's one work in the Hebrew Bible doesn't necessarily dictate that it's written by one author. But what it indicates is that it's probably written... Uh, very close together. So uh, Ezra could have been writing the book of Ezra and Nehemiah could have been writing his book and they're just simply merged on one scroll or a couple scrolls. And that's how we would find these books. Later on, I mean, when we think of uh, of writing and think of, of uh, epistles or books, we would think somebody sits down and, you know, and writes this book uh, and then, you know, maybe uh, rewrites it or uh, corrects errors or somebody reads it and corrects it. But that's not how it worked. They really sat down and they would write it on a single scroll. And because they didn't have numerous scrolls, they would have, 
you know, somebody would make them a scroll. And they would start writing, and they would fill the entire scroll from the very top to the bottom, and they'd leave out spaces, and they'd write in capital letters. And so it's just a long list of letters that anybody who really who spoke the language would, could see where the divisions in the words were. But they would write right up to the bottom of the scroll, or if they finished and there's part of the scroll left, then somebody who might be copying another scroll. So we might have Ezra... A, uh, a scribe is copying the book of Ezra and he copies it and he gets you know, he finishes the book of Ezra and he has maybe some space left so he doesn't let that go to waste or he's not going to cut it off he just starts copying Nehemiah right in behind it without even uh, missing a space well he might give him a space or two but so we have these scrolls with the books just you know, completely filling pages so anyhow, uh, they're one work in the Hebrew Bible and should be studied together for a better understanding of the return. And we're, we plan to do that. The return of the Babylonian exiles to Jerusalem. The combined narrative presents the story of the exiles' return in two time periods, each marked by two prominent leaders. Rebuilding the temple under Zerubbabel and Joshua the priest, which is 538 through 515, and restoring the worship of God and rebuilding Jerusalem's walls, Jerusalem's walls under Ezra and Nehemiah. Nehemiah would be the priest, excuse me, Ezra would be the priest during the period of time that he's there, and Joshua is going to be the, the priest during the time of Zerubbabel. Uh, yet the book of Ezra is not simply a string of historical facts about the returning exiles. Instead, the narrative shows how God fulfilled his promises announced by the prophets. He brought his people back from Babylon, rebuilt the temple at Jerusalem, restored the pattern of true worship, and even preserved the reassembled community from fresh relapses into heathen customs and idolatrous worship. Though the prophets and leaders, through the prophets and leaders, uh, he had called, the Lord had preserved and cultivated a small group of returning exiles known as the remnant of Israel. So we have a remnant that's coming back. Those are, the, those are going to be the survivors that are going to start the nation of Israel again. The extraordinary reality of God's promised restoration of his people, and we'll see this in Jeremiah 27:22, is recorded in detail in the book of Ezra. The remnant did not merely return to the devastated ruins of Jerusalem. They came back with a hope placed in their hearts by God to rebuild the nation. With godly determination, they rebuilt the temple. Then the Lord sent Ezra and Nehemiah to exhort them to obey his law wholeheartedly. While the people were rebuilding Jerusalem's walls, God was rebuilding their hearts so that they would truly obey and worship him. The restoration of the remnant was a complete restoration. The message for Ezra's day, as well as for our own, is that the God of Israel is faithful to his promises. He will completely restore his people when they come back to him. All right, I've used an outline here. Uh, and you can see that it's really a very simple outline. And uh, this I'm not going to go through in, in detail. But we can see the first return and the rebuilding under Zerubbabel is chapters 1 through 6. Um, the second uh, major outline, head of the outline, is the second return 
and the reform under Ezra, and that is chapters 7 through 10. And what I hope to do uh, in the middle of chapters uh, 1 through 6 is actually go over to Haggai and Zechariah, and we'll see portions of those. Uh, Haggai's a little shorter, so we may even be able to read that that book in its completion. Um, Then, let's see, the principal characters. All right, now, the principal characters here, the reason I insert them is so that when we see them or when we hear their names, we'll remember them. I'm sure you will, probably. Remember them throughout the rest of your lifetime. Okay, Um, let's go back to another slide here. We'll start with the Babylonian Empire because that's really where we start. Nebuchadnezzar, at the end of 2 Kings 25 and 2 Chronicles, oh, 2 Chronicles 35, I think, 36, is, uh, is in charge. Yeah, 2 Chronicles 36. So, first of all, Nebuchadnezzar, he reigns from approximately 605 to 562 B.C. Now, he's king of Babylon, he's the son of Nabopolassar, who is the first king of the Babylonian Empire. He conducts the three deportations from Judah, told you about those, 605, Daniel, 597, Ezekiel, and 586, and he destroys Jerusalem in 586. Some say 587. We're not. It's just how they figure the time. Uh, this is the Babylonian kingdom. And you'll see here, at the same time, building was the Median kingdom. And at the same time, we also have a Persian kingdom. And the Persian kingdom is going to be down in this location. Uh, Susa is going to become the capital for the... Uh, the Persian kingdom. But right now, this is the Babylonian kingdom. Uh, they were able to conquer down almost, you know, down in through Egypt here, along the Nile. They do not get down into Ethiopia. But this is where we are with Nebuchadnezzar. Now, uh, Nabonidus is the last king of Babylon, but he doesn't reside in the city of Babylon. He instead prefers to live in southwest Babylon, and there are some, we don't know exactly where it was, there's some that say it was as far south as over here uh, near uh, Edom. Don't know if that's necessarily true, but uh, he placed the administration in the hands of the, the, placed the administration of the empire in the hands of Belshazzar. Belshazzar is the next one on our list. And it says, that he reigns from 556 to 539. I don't think I said uh, Nabonidus reigns from 556 to 539. And you'll notice that the periods of time with Nabonidus and Belshazzar are the same. And the reason it's the same, it's because uh, Nabonidus, again, did not like ruling, so he placed someone else on the throne and he departed. Uh, He was still considered the king, but Belshazzar is also called the king. Uh, He's believed to be the son of 
uh, Nabonidus, placed in charge of Babylon, and is the ruler when Cyrus captures the city in 539 B.C. Now, Cyrus the Great is going to be the first ruler of the unified Persian Empire. And let me move over to this slide. And these are very difficult to read down here, uh, but it's really not that necessary. These are the different periods, and here you can see Persia. This is the, uh, the Median Empire uh, at, the, at its beginning. And uh, uh, the, this is the heartland of the Persian Empire when Cyrus ascends to the throne of Persia. He will then conquer Media, adding it to his uh, empire. He then comes over here and conquers Lydia. After conquering Lydia, he then brings in Babylon. And then down here is uh, Egypt and Libya. They come under uh, his son, Cambyses. So that's the building of this Persian Empire. And the Persian Empire, later on under uh, Xerxes, is going to add Thrace. As a matter of fact, it might, yeah, uh, yeah, uh, Xerxes you know, adds this. And so that, uh, the Persian Empire is one of the largest empires uh, in the world. So Cyrus the Great, the first ruler of the unified empire, the construction of the temple begins in Jerusalem under Zerubbabel, but it's not completed under him. Cambyses extends the Persian Empire into Egypt, dies while returning to Susa, or we'll see in Esther it's called Sushan, and that's going to be, yes, here it is, Susa, right in here. He's returning, he's down in Egypt, he's just... uh, conquered Egypt, he's added it to the empire, and he hears of an insurrection back in Susa. So he's returning, and we believe that he is, um, he actually injures himself with his own sword, and he gets gangrene and he dies uh, somewhere out here in, uh, in Arabia. Uh, he apparently had not supported the construction, though, of the temple, so the temple is not completed under him. Uh, Darius the Great, 552 to 486, king of Persia in Ezra 5.6, when the construction of the temple is resumed and finished. The temple is dedicated in 515. So Darius is the one that has to go back in time and finds the edict, the proclamation of Cyrus to rebuild the temple. And he's, um, when the uh, plea comes to him or during the first group's return there, during somewhere in the vicinity of about five, we'll see what the date is, but in that, during that first group of 535 to 515, the temple uh, construction stops and then it's resumed when Darius says, yes, you may, re, you may uh, re- resume construction. Uh, Xerxes the first. 486 to 565, king of Persia during the time of Esther, also known as Azarias. That's what he's called in Esther 1.1. Esther becomes his queen and helps preserve the Jews in Persia who did not return to Judah. 
Uh, and the story of Esther covers, we believe, about 483 to 473. Artaxerxes I, king of Persia, during the returns of Ezra and Nehemiah. So we'll see them. And then Darius II, 423 to 405, 405, the king of Persia, when all the walls of Jerusalem are completed under Nehemiah. So those are our kings that we're going to see during our study. And if you need to, you can just always return to these. Uh, Prophets and leaders. First of all, Jeremiah. Jeremiah, and I've placed here the approximate time that he ministered. He ministered from 626 to 586 B.C. He's the prophet to Judah. And if you read uh, the book of Jeremiah, he is talking to the rulers of, of Judah prior to the fall. So, he ministers to Judah in the final years before the destruction of Jerusalem. He's taken captive to Egypt where it is believed that he dies down in, uh, in Egypt. Ezekiel ministers 597 to 571 B.C. Prophet in exile in Babylon during captivity. So he is talking to Israel during the captivity from Babylon. I could have put Daniel prior to him, but uh, Ezekiel comes first in the Old Testament. So Daniel then ministers from, six, I'd say, 605. That's the time that he was deported. He's deported in 605, and he ministers at least until about 530 B.C., Uh, prophet in exile in Babylon during the captivity. We really don't know when he dies, but he writes probably as late as 530 B.C. Now, the next individual is somebody that's important. We're going to see him in our first chapter in Ezra. Uh, Shesh Bazar. Uh, We believe that there are some who believe that he is the same as Zerubbabel, one and the same person. But there appears to be enough evidence that um, that they are two different people. Um, what I've said here is that uh, Shesh Zabar, the man's identity is in question. Some believe he and Zerubbabel are the same person. Others believe he is the first governor of Judah, the one who led the first return but quickly disappears from view and Zerubbabel replaces him. Either option fits the narrative and doesn't affect the outcome. Uh, most people will, pro- will just sort of cut through that and say, well, Zerubbabel appears to be the one that is doing most of the work in that first group, and so we just make Zerubbabel the leader coming back. But we do know that Sesh Sabar is uh, a governor of Judah of, of the Jews at least while they're in captivity. And so he's the one that's given the proclamation and he's the one that, that begins the effort for the first group to come back to Israel. We know that. All right, Zerubbabel, 535, 515, returned with the first group of Jews, may have even led them, to Judah to rebuild the temple. Called the governor of Judah... And Haggai 1.1 completes and dedicates the temple in 5.15. So Zerubbabel 
is key to our first chapters in Ezra. Joshua, the high priest that accompanies, uh, I give him 535 to 515 as well. Uh, this is just the time that they were ministering. The high priest that accompanied the first uh, the first group, I man, didn't get that finished, accompanied the first group of, of Jews to Judah to rebuild the temple, also called Yeshua in Ezra 2.2. Yeshua, uh, and I've talked about this in the past, is that the transliterated word from Hebrew into English for Joshua is is Yeshua. And that's also the name for Jesus. We use the term Jesus because we take it out of the Latin. But you'll very often hear your uh, Jewish friends who are believers that will not pronounce the name. There's no reason that they don't do it, but uh, they don't say Jesus. They'll say Yeshua. Now, because of German influence, the Y became a J. So, Yeshua is what we'll often see in our text. And as a matter of fact, um, in Ezra, we might as well open our Bibles to Ezra, who we're supposed to be. In Ezra 2, 3, 2, 2 rather. In Ezra 2, 2, those who came with Zerubbabel were... Yeshua. And so the name Yeshua in very often in English is going to be pronounced or said as as Joshua. So what we have with these words is the Hebrew word we would normally pronounce Yeshua is going to be translated either Joshua, well, translated Joshua into English. But in our English translations in the New Testament, because we have a Latin influence, instead of pronouncing Jesus' name, Joshua, we pronounce it Jesus. And in a way that gives us a little bit of a distinction between Joshua in the Old Testament and Jesus in the New Testament. But really, it's Yeshua in Hebrew and Joshua in English. And it means um, he saves. So, Savior is very often how it's then. Well, if we get a translation, Savior. I enjoy doing that. I know that y'all are your eyes glaze over. But I think it's kind of important so that when you have a Jewish friend, um, very often called a Messianic Jew or uh, a Jew who is a believer, they very often will use the Hebrew name, Yeshua. Yeshua. If it's pronounced 
Jeshua, you just simply know that that's where that German influence is in our translations. They, instead of a Y, they put a J there. And that is the name for Jesus in our English text. But in the Old Testament, uh, it's called Joshua, English translation Joshua, and it means Savior. Okay, that was Joshua, 535-515. Ezra, ah, finally, getting to Ezra here. 458 to 420 B.C. He's the high priest who leads or returns with the second group of Jewish exiles to Judah to institute legal and social reforms. He's the author of the books of First and Second Chronicles and Ezra and possibly Nehemiah. Then, Nehemiah, 444-432 B.C., leader of the third group of Jewish exiles to Judah to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem author of the book of Nehemiah. So that as we remember this, and it's kind of the way that we should remember it, is that Zerubbabel brings a group back and they rebuild the temple. And then Ezra comes back because even though we have a temple built and dedicated, we are really out of sorts with God. And so he starts the uh, spiritual reforms that are needed. And then Nehemiah brings the third group back, and they rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. Haggai, give him the time of about 520 B.C. He's the prophet who ministered to the exiles who returned to Jerusalem. So we'll see uh, in the book of Haggai that he is there during that period. Then Zechariah, 520 to 518, prophet who ministers to the exiles who returned to Jerusalem. All right, so we're moving along here pretty well. Let me quickly take us to a couple passages here. Let's go to 2 Kings 24.8. I'm going to do some rapid, rapid sword drill here. 2 Kings 24.8. And the reason we are coming to 2 Kings 24.8 and not the end of the book is that the second deportation. This is when Ezekiel's going back. We see what occurs here. Uh, Jehoiakim was 18 years old when he became king. He is the second to the last king of Jerusalem, of Israel, of Judah. His mother, named Nahushta, the daughter of El Nathan of Jerusalem, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord according to all his father had done. At that time, the servants of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up against Jerusalem, and the city was besieged. And Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came against the city as his servants were besieging it. Then Jehoiachin, king of Judah, his mother, his servants, his princes, and his officers, went out to the king of Babylon. The king of Babylon, in the eighth year of his reign, took him prisoner. So they don't destroy the city because they go out to him. And he carried out from there all the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house, and he cut in pieces all the articles of gold which Solomon, king of Jerusalem, had made in the temple of the Lord as the Lord had said. You may remember during, a, uh, 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 during one of the, the times of one of the kings, and my mind's a blank right now, uh, uh, he brought the Babylonians in and showed him all the treasure treasures that he had and the Lord said 
uh, one of the prophets told him that was a mistake because they're going to return and take those treasures. And so here they do. Also, he carried into captivity uh, all Jerusalem, all the captains and all the mighty men of valor, 10,000 captains and all the craftsmen and smiths. None remain except the poorest people of the land. And they carried Jehoiachim captive to Babylon. The king's mother, the king's wives, his officers, and the mighty of the land he carried into captivity from Jerusalem to Babylon. All the valiant men, 7,000 and craftsmen and smiths, 1,000, all who were strong and fit for war, these the king of Babylon brought captive to Babylon. So that's our second deportation. Now let's go to Second Chronicles 36. Second Chronicles 36.15. Okay, that was Jehoiachin going into captivity. And then Zedekiah is the last king. And verse 15, The Lord God of their fathers sent warnings to them by his messengers, rising up early and sending them, because he had compassion on his people, Israel, and on his dwelling place, Jerusalem. But the people mocked those messengers, the messengers of God, despising his word, despised his word, and scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of God, the justice of God, arose against his people till there was no remedy, there was no chance to recover. Therefore he brought against them the king of the Chaldeans. The Babylonians are also known as the Chaldeans. This is Nebuchadnezzar, who killed their young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary and had no compassion on their young men or virgin, on the aged or weak, he gave them all into his hand. God gave them all into Nebuchadnezzar's hand. This is 586 B.C. And all the articles from the house of God, great and small, the treasures of the house of the Lord, and the treasures of the king and of his leaders, all these Nebuchadnezzar took to Babylon. Then they, the Babylonians, burned the house of God, broke down all the walls of Jerusalem, burned all its palaces with fire, and destroyed all its precious possessions. And those who escaped from the sword, he carried away to Babylon, where they became servants to him and his sons until the rule of the king, um, until the rule of the kingdom of Persia to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed her Sabbaths as long as she lay desolate, she kept, uh, she kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. Now, let's turn... Not gonna, okay, verse 22. Now, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, this takes us to Ezra. Now, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and put it in writing, saying, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, All the kingdoms of the earth the Lord God of heaven hath given me, and he hath commanded me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Who is among you, all of his people? May the Lord his God be with him, and let him go up. So Cyrus is going to send the first deportation the first group of people back to Judah. You'll notice he, he says, 
All the kingdoms of the earth, the Lord God of heaven hath given me. He recognizes that there is a God that is uh, more powerful than himself. Let's go to Jeremiah. Jeremiah 25, 9. Jeremiah 25, 9. Jeremiah 25.9. This is Jeremiah. And remember, Jeremiah is the prophet that is bringing the word of the Lord to the Jews in Judah prior to 586 B.C. So this is a prophecy. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, Because you have not heard my words, behold, I will send and take all the families of the north, says the Lord, and Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, will bring them against this land, against its inhabitants, and against these nations all around, and will utterly destroy them, and make them an astonishment, a hissing, and a perpetual desolation. Moreover, I will take them, uh, I will take from them the voice of mirth, and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom, and the voice of the bride, the sound of the millstones, and the light of the lamp. And this whole land shall be a desolation and an astonishment. And these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. So, 70 years. And we could see that also in 29.10, but let's go to Daniel 1.2. Daniel 9.1.2. This is in about 538-539. We're going to see that Daniel is working in the first year of, of Darius, the son of Azarias. Um, Azarias here is uh, Xerxes. Um, of the lineage of the Medes, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by the books the number of years specified by the word of the Lord through Jeremiah, uh, the prophet, that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolation of Jerusalem. So Daniel knows he's aware of what Jeremiah has said back in the land. He's aware of what's been said, and he says, 70 years, I'm going to start figuring this period of time. There's 70 years, and we're supposed to be returning to the land. So, let's now go to Ezra. Had all this fun, but we need to get started. I want to get started in this book. Ezra. Book of Ezra, verse 1. Ezra 1, verse 1. And what we're going to see in the book of Ezra is that we start the book of Ezra the exact way that 1 Chronicles 36 ended. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, this is somewhere in the vicinity of 539 B.C. So about 539 B.C. And remember, we're working down...
in our time. So we're coming from 600 B.C. this way, and we come to 539, and then depending upon the timing, the first group arrives back in the land, 538, 538, or some would say 535. So this is the way that we're moving in time. So, now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, now this is not... The first, this is not when he came to, to reign, but when he was now reigning over, uh, over Babylon as well as Persia. So this is when he sort of consolidated his reign. Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, uh, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus. The word stirred up means it aroused it king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and put it in writing, saying, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, all the kingdoms of the earth, the Lord God of heaven has given me, and he has commanded me to build him a house at Jerusalem. Uh, The word Hebrew word, bayath, we understand it very clearly to mean the temple here. He's building him a temple, which is in Judah. Who is among you of all his people? So he's looking out at the people and he's saying, Who's here that can go back? Um, Who is among you all his people? May his God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and build the house, the temple of the Lord, the Lord God of Israel. He is God, which is in Jerusalem. Now, there's some question as to whether Cyrus was a believer or not. Uh, he's called in Isaiah, he's called the servant of the Lord. Now that doesn't necessarily require him to be a believer because God simply uses him as a servant. But it's possible that Cyrus was a believer. And his language here and there seems to give us the sense that he at least understands who Yahweh is, the God of Israel. Verse 4, And whoever is left in any place where he dwells, let the men of his place help him with silver and gold, with goods and livestock, besides the freewill offering for the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. So, Cyrus's edict here instructs the returnees to go to their neighbors who were not going back. Some of them are going to be Jews that remain and others are going to be Persians or if they are deportees from some other place, they're directed to give them silver and gold to take back with them. And that part of it would be to help them with the trip going back. And then it says... Uh, besides the free will offering for the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. So the silver, the gold, the goods and the livestock, we believe, 
are to help them return and build their life back in the land. But the free will offering that these people were also supposed to give was to help build the temple. Five. Uh, And by the way, you'll notice this is what we might call our second exodus. And we had an exodus that came out of Egypt. Now we have this exodus coming out of Babylon. So we have an exodus of people. Then the heads of the families... Uh, Then the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin, and the priests and the Levites, with all whose spirits God had moved or aroused, it's our stirred up again, arose to go up and build the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem. And all those who were around them encouraged them, and the word here encouraged means to strengthen them, encouraged them with articles of silver and gold, with goods and livestock, and with precious things, Besides all, that was willingly offered. So we have these two different uh, parts that they're being given, two different gifts. One to sustain them and help them uh, begin a new life, and the other one is for the temple. King Cyrus also brought out the articles of the house of the Lord, which Nebuchadnezzar had taken from Jerusalem and put in the temple of his gods. And Cyrus, king of Persia, brought them out by the hand of uh, Mithridath, the treasurer, and counted them out to Sheshbazar, the prince of Judah. So, here we have this individual. And again, some people think that this is Zerubbabel, but there's no real proof of that. And I think it, uh, it's very likely that he could have been the prince back in Judah, and he probably comes with this group. Um, this is the number of them, of the items that he's taking out of the temp, or uh, giving, giving him to take back to the temple. Thirty gold platters, one thousand silver platters, twenty-nine knives, thirty gold basins, four hundred and ten silver basins of a similar kind, and one thousand other articles. All the articles of gold and silver were five thousand four hundred. All these Seshbazar took with captives who were brought from Babylon to Jerusalem. All right. We have a toehold in Ezra. Uh, Hopefully the background information is uh, important to you, vital to help help us kind of get started in Ezra. I'll review a little bit of uh, how the book is is, uh, put together uh, next week. But we'll start uh, next week in chapter 2 have a lot of names a lot of numbers so I won't be spending a lot of time there we'll probably just press on right into chapter 3 and uh, from chapter 3 we'll see we'll get a little bit better feel for what's happening in the book alright any questions let's bow our heads in prayer dear Heavenly Father we're thankful for the information that we've been able to gather about this book. We pray that uh, we'll either be able to review it or remember these these names and some of this information so that as we go forward in the book of Ezra that it will be meaningful to us. And we are thankful, Father, that you are faithful and that you are not only faithful to uh, the Israelites, to the Jews uh, during this period of time, but you are also faithful to us. And we need to rely on your faithfulness and certainly... Uh, observe it and see it in our lives. Uh, We ask for your blessing upon 
this information in this day. And we also pray, Father, that uh, you'll bless us as we uh, go about our this week and bring us back next week on Friday. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.